Welcome back to Native Exiles, Alderwood Community Church's podcast, where we talk about following Jesus in the tension of being in the world, but not of it. And this year, our church is going through a year in the Bible, a year in God's story. And as we've been in the first five books of the Bible as a church, a lot of questions have come up. How do we read the Old Testament? How do we understand it? What applies today and what doesn't? And Steve and I are going to get into a lot of those. We have a great time. I hope it's a blessing to you. Steve, it's good to be back with you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. And uh, we got some stuff to talk about. We've been leading our church through a year in God's story. We're all reading the Bible together, uh, kind of straight through, not totally in the order of the Bible books, but we're in the beginning of the story, the first five books. And uh, it's been, I think, really great. And I've been talking to a ton of people who are learning new things. This is a first thing for them where they're reading through the Bible, maybe for the first time. You know, they've always just read chunks here and there, verses here and there. But the first time they started at the beginning and started reading. And, uh, and yeah, it's been challenging too. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Yeah. I mean, the thing that is always a danger, whether you've read the Bible through 10 times or you're new to it, is especially in this part of the Bible, you're just reading these laws after laws or names after names, and you just get a little glossy eyed. You're glazed over. And it's easy to get lost in the in the reading and the details. Yeah. I mean, we just are finishing up Numbers. Um, numbers has some action in it for sure, but there's also like we just read a whole chapter that just listed in order all the places they went in the wilderness. Did you work on your Hebrew pronunciation when you read that? <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie. With lots of glottal stops. I skimmed through that. Part. <laughs> uh, you know, and so let's, for anybody who's ever attempted a Bible reading plan, whether they're at Alderwood with us or they're somewhere else. No, no, wait a minute. I get to register my complaint. Okay. There was the chapter where... All leaders of all 12 tribes brought their tribute to God in the temple, and they all brought the exact same thing that weighed the exact same amount. I'm like, God, you need an editor here, because somebody could have just hit copy and paste or put ditto marks, but we read through all 12 gifts. I remember in my Bible reading plan that you know we're doing on the Bible app, so there's a comment section where you can talk to all the other people that are in it, and somebody said, it struck me this morning that the Bible could have been a lot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I thought that was a pretty good comment. I mean, so, but let's talk about that. Like for, for people who are in this with us now, or just people who have experienced this themselves at some point, I mean, what can we say to the people who are like, okay, if I'm honest with you, I'm kind of bored. I read three chapters of Le- Leviticus this morning. It didn't mean a whole lot to me. I couldn't wait to get to the Psalm at the end. Yeah. Thankfully there's a Psalm every day. Yeah. I mean, that's a great thing. Uh, but, I mean, how should we think about that? Is that? If you feel that way when you're reading through the list of places the tribes went in numbers, does that mean you're a bad Christian? Does that mean... Because, I, I mean, I've heard some guilt trips in my day. For sure. You know, I've heard some, like, this is God's word. And, like, think of, like, the God of creation gave this to you for your benefit and you're telling me you're not getting anything out of this and i i've heard that said i mean is that are you gonna tell me that this morning steve (laughs) i i am not i i'll get really personal just to start out because i mean like i said the glazed eyed thing can hit you whether you're new to it or you know it's old hat and i found several mornings where it was tricky for me but one of the things that's been really helpful and i say this at the risk of it even sounding cliche but it's just been so real to me there've been mornings where i'm just like lord i know the problem isn't you it's me 
And while I don't think God necessarily expects us to read genealogies with the same level of enthusiasm or attention that we might read a narrative from Jesus, I've just spent some mornings really asking God to open up his word to me and show me things that really spark my heart and get my attention. So like just as one really cool example, I was reading through Leviticus. I mean, Leviticus is notably the trickiest slog, Mm -hmm. I think, for a lot of people. And right there in the middle of Leviticus, Leviticus 19 is the very famous chapter where God says, be holy as I am holy. And I just saw something so powerful that day as I read it. All the laws that come right after God saying that are just so deeply relational. Don't hate your neighbor. Don't look down on poor people and aliens because you were an alien. You should love them with that compassion. And it's just deeply relational. And in fact, Wyatt, it sounds a lot like Jesus, which is no surprise that from that chapter, Jesus quoted, love your neighbor as yourself. So that was just a moment that God gave me. Let's just stop there for a second. I mean, some people don't even realize that, that when Jesus sums up the law and the prophets in two commands, to love God with everything that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself— He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, and I bet a lot of people saw that for the first time as they were reading through Leviticus, you know, like, oh, okay, this isn't all just, you know, seemingly arbitrary rules about how to make sacrifices and how to lay out the tabernacle. Like, no, there's real heart of God kind of things here to grab onto, and that's helpful. Um, What else would you say to somebody who's struggling? Like, why why do I have to read this? You know... Even like my grandparents, I would sit sometimes and listen to my grandparents and they would sometimes, I hate to use the word, but just drone on about certain aspects of their history, which honestly, now that they're gone and passed and with Jesus, thankfully, I would love to be able to sit down with Mm -hmm. my grandpa again and hear him tell me about all the relatives that preceded him and their funny names and all that kind of thing. I mean, we all have a history and, and it's funny, like the older you get, I think your history gets more important to you too. So I think that's part of it. It's just Mm. recognizing, hey, just because this doesn't give me warm, fuzzy feelings, this is important to the whole story. Yeah. One day when you're gone, I'm going to cherish these conversations, Steve. (laughs) Thanks, Wyatt. Uh, I'll get there ahead (laughs) of you, I'm pretty sure. That's, uh, no, that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've experienced some of the things that you're talking about as well. I think the more you read the Bible and the more you learn, the more knowledge you get, the more you're going to find some nuggets in areas that previously it didn't make any sense to you. That's a great point. You know, so I just want to encourage people keep going at the same time though, I would say don't beat yourself up. Like it is okay that a long genealogy in the old Testament isn't filling your heart with warm (laughs) joy. Like, you know, did you just say that out loud? It's okay. You know, like I think sometimes we have some misconceptions about why we're reading the Bible, what it means to read the Bible. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of this year that we're spending as a church is to remember that the Bible is a story. It's God's story. And some parts of the story are more interesting than others. You know, some are more relevant to our lives than others. You know, that may that might feel weird to some people, but it is 100% true that the Bible is all equally inspired by God. It's not all equally important. <laughs> like, I mean, that might sound like a scandal to somebody. My but Sunday just, school teacher did not teach me that. Yeah, so you heard it here first on Native Exiles. The <laughs> Bible, every verse is not equally important. And I mean, just to defend that, Jesus teaches that. I mean, Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? 
And he does not answer. Uh, well, he really can't say. I mean, they're all inspired. They're all equal. He doesn't. He says, here you go. Number one, number two, uh, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, so Jesus is totally fine with hierarchy within the importance of, of scripture. And I would say so is everybody listening to this. I mean, one of the things I'll I'll say when I'm kind of going back and forth with somebody on this is, you know, let's say your neighbor that doesn't know the Lord is in the hospital, might only have a couple days to live, and, (laughs) you know, you get called to the bedside, and your neighbor expresses interest in Christianity for the first time. And they say, "You man, you've been following Jesus, you know the Bible, just tell me, what what is the message of the Bible? Like, what are you going to do? You're going to start at Genesis 1 and just start reading? (laughs) Like, no, you're going to go straight to the heart of the gospel. You're going to start sharing about salvation, you know, by faith, you know, through God's grace, you're going to talk about the cross. You're going to you're going to go to the most important things. So it's okay that that's true. It's okay that at some times when you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament and it just doesn't feel as important, it's okay. It doesn't mean though that it's a waste of time, right? Because my my question to you, I mean, let's ask you to get personal for a second. Yeah. Have you been waking up every morning telling God this just isn't all that important to me? This section, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> No, not. But no. Where, where have you had moments where you've seen maybe some new things? Well, I would say I've just loved preparing for this teaching series that we're in mm. of building blocks because I think it's gotten to the heart of why it matters to read your Old Testament and to know it is because, you know, the stuff that we might say is more important in the New Testament, or the stuff that's easier for us to comprehend, it's more meaningful. I think reading through the first five books of the Bible, seeing the themes there that are being reset and recast and mm-hmm. relooked at in these New Testament passages has actually given so much more meaning to the passages that maybe we read more often. Yeah, uh, and so I've loved seeing that. I've loved seeing some of the the verses in the New Testament that I've read a hundred times and have heard over and over and kind of having the light bulb moment go off of, oh, like that's referring back to, you know, this story yep. in Numbers, in Leviticus, in, you know, in Genesis. And so that's been really cool. And, you know, I think when you understand the Bible is a story, um, you realize like every chapter matters. Like the, the story is building. Yeah, we haven't gotten to Jesus yet. We haven't gotten to some of the things that we hold to so dearly, but they, yeah, they mean so much more once you have seen where we've come from. And that's kind of the spot that we're in right now. That's a great point. And, you know, maybe as a pastor, I do a little deeper dive on some things than some others might we have access to resources and some things, but like, for instance, a passage we might talk about later, the passage where the jealous husband comes along and he says, I'm pretty sure my wife has slept with somebody else. And she goes through this ritual and all these things. I was doing some study on that, not just to understand, you know, what it actually meant at the time, but the guy I was reading was pointing out, there's a bunch of references in the new Testament to that seemingly very odd ritual, like Jesus with the woman at the well, actually makes a statement that harkens back to that very passage. Interesting. And it's just cool how you see, to your point, there's a bigger story. The Jews, I think, obviously got the connections a lot quicker than we would. But as we come to be more familiar with the Bible, we see really rich connections like that, too. Yeah. It's also important to remember that the New Testament writers, by and large, 
were writing to a Jewish audience that had been soaked in the Old Testament scriptures. And so they just expect you to know the Old Testament. Right. They don't explain Old Testament references. They just say things and they expect you to get it. And so if you want to be able to read the New Testament with richness as the authors are intending you to read it, you have to know your Old Testament. There's no way to get around it. Yep. That's one of the things Tim Mackey, we both love, talks a lot, you know, on the yeah. Bible Project. He's always talking about, it's like there's links there, you know, in the New Testament that the Hebrews would have gotten right away. But for us, we just don't take the time to go back and look at the historical or the Old Testament backdrop. Yeah, yeah. That's helpful. Okay. So uh, people who have been with us, they've been asking us some questions, and I'd love to get into some of that with you. Uh, I think... One of the big ones that people have been wrestling with, we have encountered a lot of law in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of rules, uh, 613 commands, I believe, in the first five books of the Bible. And it's not always easy to understand how we should read that as New Testament believers, because we're used to reading the Bible and doing what it says, like, especially in the New Testament. I mean, you know, New Testament letters, Paul's writing to churches, like pretty much we almost always will just apply that to ourselves pretty directly. If the Bible says something, we are supposed to do it. So you're telling me that all of your clothing right now is made of one material. You don't have any mixed polyester <laughs> well, yeah. and cotton. So that's why it's so confusing is because that method of reading the Bible doesn't seem to work very well in the Old Testament. Yeah, the prohibition against the clothing of mixed fabrics or eating shellfish or eating pork or honoring the Sabbath day. I mean, we could go on and on. Boiling a goat in its mother's milk. Yep, never been a temptation of mine, but <laughs> apparently it was for some folks. Uh, yeah, so what's up with that? Like, why do we get away with ignoring a bunch of commands in the Old Testament while also believing that it's really important that we obey what the Bible teaches. How do, we, how do we bring those things together? How do we view the law? Yeah. I'm asking you, Steve, if you got an answer. Great question. Give me 10 <laughs> minutes to think about it. <laughs> I mean, have you encountered that? I have, actually. I mean, because it seems like we're almost selective, mm -hmm. right? I mean, obviously, most of us would say, yeah, the Ten Commandments are a good thing. Well, everything about the Sabbath part, I don't typically... Set aside my Saturdays. Yeah, nine of the Ten Commandments Will, are still in effect. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I've heard it actually as an objection, too, from people outside the faith. You know, sure. they would say, okay, so you guys seem really selective. Like, for instance, you're going to hearken back to the Old Testament to say that God prohibits homosexuality. Um, but he, you know, you guys don't seem to have a problem with eating shellfish now. So what's up with that? And both are said the exact same way in the book of Leviticus. Like you should not eat shellfish. It should be considered an abomination to you. Yes. One should not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That should be considered an abomination to you. And it's like, these are said with the exact same level of force. So why do we still believe one and not the other? That's the question. It's a great question. So I don't think there's a one simple answer to that. And Christians have wrestled with this a lot of mm -hmm. how we relate to the Old Testament law. Um, maybe I should start by sharing kind of a tool that has been helpful for some folks when you read Old Testament law in particular, which is to realize that there's, there's kind of three categories of laws in the Old Testament, because we have to remember that God is not speaking to the world generally in the Old Testament. He's speaking to the people of Israel. And so we have moral laws, which are what we're kind of used to in the Bible, rules that govern morality, how you should treat people, how you should worship God, you know, values. Don't lie, don't commit adultery. Yep. 
Yep. And those are the ones that typically are easier for us to apply today because mm-hmm. morality hasn't changed that much, you know? So, um, but then there's two other categories in the Old Testament that we'll run into. One is ceremonial laws and the other is civil laws. So ceremonial laws are laws like around temple worship, how right. to perform sacrifices, uh, what God expects when you come to the temple to confess sin. And, you and know, there seems to be a lot of ceremonial yeah. law. So yeah, how how the altar should be constructed, how big the tabernacle should be, you know, what sacrifices to do on what days. So that's the ceremonial law. And for most Christians, we would just say, those laws don't apply to us because we're not under that that mode that of co- the old covenant. Yeah, we uh, Jesus has come. The veil in the temple has been torn. Mm-hmm. He's the ultimate sacrifice. We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. So just that whole way of relating to God through temple worship has passed away. Jesus has fulfilled it. And so those laws aren't in effect anymore. And the book of Hebrews, for instance, lays that out in great detail for us. Yep, yep. And then the third part is the civil laws, and those are laws just governing the kind of political reality of a nation, because Israel is not just a religion, they're a nation. And so, you know, there's laws about uh, putting a fence around your roof so that nobody falls off. It's like building codes, you know? (laughs) Uh, And so there's things like that. And again, most Christians would say, well, those kind of laws, they just don't apply to us anymore. Uh, because the church today, New Testament believers, we aren't a nation. We are scattered throughout the nations. We are all citizens of a country, of a government, and we're followers of Jesus. And so, you know, the the civil laws of like how to set up the government of Israel don't apply to us. So, any for longer. instance, if someone in our congregation is found committing adultery, we're not going to take them into the parking lot and stone them. Well, so, but that's the, but that's moral, right? Like, well, doesn't it mix the two? There's oh, the yeah. moral side, but then the civil side is that that would be a capital offense. Correct. Correct. So, I mean, and maybe why that leads us into, I was raised with that same view. You have this sort of, you know, tripartite, this three mm-hmm. uh, ways of viewing the law. But what gets tricky is it does seem like in the example I just gave that the civil and the moral kind of bleed into each other. Like, how do I know exactly which ones are civil? Is is the Sabbath a civil law, but the rest of the Ten Commandments are moral laws? It gets confusing. It does. And that's where I think those three parts, it's a helpful tool, but it's it doesn't answer all the questions because it's not like there's some New Testament verse that says, you know, two of the three parts of the Old Testament law are done away with, but this one part is still in effect. And so follow all those Old Testament laws. Nor is there a caveat at the beginning of each chapter of Leviticus that says, okay, here's all the ceremonial laws. So yeah, so this, these three part things, they're something that we are imposing on the text. Like we are creating categories and dividing things up. It's not something that is given to us by God. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's right. ju- it's just, so it's, I think, useful in some ways and limited in others. And the biggest one that you're pointing out is it's like all these laws have to do with morality. Just because it's a civil law with a punishment doesn't mean it's not also moral. God viewed it morally with the children of Israel. Yeah, I mean, the ceremonial stuff, there's morality in that. I mean, uh, to come into God's presence in an unclean state, that is ceremonial, 
it's also immoral. Like the Jewish people would never have said that the ceremonial laws don't have anything to do with morality. They right. never would have made that distinction. And so how, how you divide that is really tricky. There is another option. And this might be new to some folks. Um, it might sound kind of scary and I get why is there are many evangelical scholars, traditions of, uh, conservative Bible believing Christians who have said, actually the way to understand why we follow certain things and we don't others is that actually all of the old Testament law was given to Israel for that time. And for that place, the moral, the ceremonial, the civil, Mm -hmm. all of it was for Israel. As New Testament believers, we are not directly morally bound by any Old Testament commandment, even the Ten Commandments. Wow. They're, they're not for us. We are bound by the law of Christ. We are bound as followers of Jesus to follow Jesus's ethic, his morality, his life, much of which is completely overlapped with Old Testament morality. It's like, you know, the Ten Commandments, for instance, Jesus repeats and actually intensifies yeah. almost all of them. Um, and so it, it, this doesn't lead to like, therefore, New Testament believers can just do whatever they want. Right. But it's just thinking more like, why? Like, why am I, as a, as a follower of Jesus, prohibited from killing my neighbor? Is it because it's one of the Ten Commandments, or is it because Jesus teaches me to love my neighbor as myself, to love even my enemy, and to pray for my enemy, and obviously that means I can't kill that person? <laughs> like, is it? And I would say the, the best way to do ethical reasoning as a follower of Jesus is to think about what has Jesus taught me to do? How has Jesus taught me to live? How has he taught me to love people? How has he taught me to treat the people around me? That's what's ethically binding to followers of Jesus today, not the laws that were given to Israel in a specific time in a specific place. How does that sit with you? Well, let's just for a second sit with the existential tension here. I think the majority of our audience is just simply asking at a very fundamental level, what do I do with, I, I know we're Christians, we're supposed to be reading this, this is all inspired by God, but mm-hmm. yeah, how does this actually apply and relate to me? Yeah. So, I mean, you gave some outlines of some ways to view the law. I think the tricky part is for a lot of Christians, if you make a statement like the Old Testament law really only applied to Israel at that time and place, it does not apply to you and me, then you there's I'll, a fear of throwing I'll the just, baby out with the bathwater. I'll stop you there, because I wouldn't say it doesn't apply. I think it applies in all kinds of ways to our life today. It's just that we're not directly bound, bound by, by it. Bound by it. That's and, a good distinction. And, and so, like, here's how it applies. You know, the Old Testament law, the way that God related to Israel, it reveals God's character to us. It reveals things about who God is, what his desires are, how he created us. Well, God is unchanging, He's the, he is the same today that he was then. So anything you learn about God's character, who he is, what he cares about, how he interacts with us, like it's all still true. It's not like, like God just wiped the slate clean and is totally different now than he was in the Old Testament. Yeah. And so it applies in all kinds of ways. It's just what's binding on us ethically. And I, I mean, I think you're approaching it from a very philosophical, ethical angle, which is really significant, but I'm just looking at it from the average Christian just going, 
honestly, I find it a little boring and at times <laughs> highly weird. And so yeah. can I kind of just skip past it? I mean, so you just intimated something there that might be helpful. Like you said, okay, it's not binding for us. And all of those laws, at least the most weighty, to use a term that Jesus used, Jesus reiterated and in fact expanded. But you talked about going back and seeing the heart of God, the character of God in those laws. Is that why you, is, it, is that how you most benefit from reading? Yes. And I also would say read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. You know, I think that's huge. What Jesus does is he helps us see the importance of what we're reading. And often Jesus is going, look, the really key thing, it wasn't it wasn't the letter of the law. It wasn't, you know, the detail of exactly how many feet wide. Some, you know, the, the, the point of the law was to help you love God and love people. That's what Jesus' whole thing is. And so when we're talking about the principles from the Old Testament to pull out and to apply to our lives today, I think that's the lens Jesus gives us. Why, would, why were these laws given? What was God trying to do? He was trying to create a people who would represent him to the world and bless the world by honoring him, loving him, and loving each other. That's what the law is all about. And Jesus says, okay, go do that. So is it enough to say, as some very well-known Christian teachers have said in the last decade, very memorably, the whole law is summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So again, I'm just that Christian sitting there with my Bible in the morning asking myself, I mean, can't I kind of do an end run? I know what this says more or less. Can't I just do an end run right to love your neighbors yourself? I say you kind of can, but you're also going to miss out a lot of depth of who God is and who he made you to be and what it means to love your neighbors yourself. And so if all you're looking for is like, give me the spark notes so I can get out of here. (laughs) I would just say, I can do that. Jesus did that. He can give you the spark notes. But also... Why is that your intent? Like, why do you not have any curiosity to know God's character more, to know the depths of who he is and what he has done? I mean, like, that's the invitation, I think, when you're sitting down with the Bible. It's not just to get the bare minimum you need. It's to have a relational encounter with a living God. And so anything you can learn, anything you can mine out, I mean, like, you get to know deeper, the God who created you. There's a lot of blessing in that. Um, so yeah, I don't, there's, I know there's a tension there. There's kind of a, a two sides. Like Jesus was pretty comfortable summing up the law and the prophets. In one phrase. You know, like, yeah. so I, I, can you do that? Yes, Jesus did it. Does it mean that there's no point in reading any of the Old Testament stuff? Uh, no, I don't think so. Here's, here's an example of how this actually works practically. Okay. So to the person who's saying, why does it matter that I know the Old Testament? Well, when we think about Christian sexuality, um, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Okay, so we live in a world where our culture is saying the only binding sexual rule is consent. Right. I won't hurt you. You don't hurt me. As long as two people have consent, anything goes. And so there's a lot of people who would say, hey, Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Like, let them do whatever they want. Yeah. You know, like just, yeah, let them sleep with whoever they want to pursue any sexual thing they want to, as long as it's consent, like it's loving. They to love just, each other. To remove all ethics around sex other than consent. That's what love is. Well, you're going to need to know your Old Testament to be able to 
put together a biblical worldview around sexual ethics because part of what's going to go into what love looks like when you're discipling someone, when you're helping somebody thrive as a human being around their sexuality is to understand how God created human beings, what he created sexuality for and to be. Did God create marriage? And if so, what did he create it to be? Like, there's so much of the Old Testament that's showing us what human flourishing looks like. Yeah. And if love means wanting the best for someone else, then you have to know what that best actually is. And that's where the Old Testament really teaches you a ton. You know? I mean, that's a great example because, you know, in all the marriage counseling I do, I mean, I point out the fact that very clearly when Jesus talks about marriage, he goes back to the Old Testament. When Paul talks about marriage, he goes back to the Old mm-hmm. Testament. Peter does the same. You just can't get a full understanding without knowing what brought you to that point. I think that's what Jesus does all the time too. Yeah. Which, which also raises another thing, Wyatt, that I, I think is super important when we talk about the law, because it's easy to talk about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that we're in right now, and just sort of characterize it as, oh my goodness, just endless, endless laws that drone on and on and some genealogies thrown in. And that's just not true. I mean, the book of Genesis is a riveting account of four generations of one family that we can totally relate to because they're highly sinful and perfect people just like we are. And even numbers, like you said, like in my counseling classes, we go to numbers 10 through 21 a lot because there's 11 separate human conflicts there. Mm -hmm. It's this great picture of how humans were thousands of years ago and still are today. We still grumble. We still don't like authority. We still want things exactly the way way we want them. So it's not fair to just talk about the law as a bunch of random commands. No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah, and so it's a story. There's a lot of things going on. And because of that... We got some questions, Dan. We do have some questions. So why don't we take a break and then we'll come back and see if we can answer more specifically some of the questions that people submitted so far. All right. All right, Steve, we're on the hot seat. We got to answer some people's questions. Some tough ones. So people sent these in. People voted on questions. The top one comes from Grant. Multiple times, God hurts or kills his people when they go against his word. Post-Jesus, does this type of wrath still exist today? So I'd say first, let's just interrogate the question a little bit. Multiple times, God hurts or kills his people when they go against his word. Uh, Fact check that one for me. Well, you got like Korah, who, you know, raises up against Moses and Aaron, and God just Opens up the ground and ground swallows, swallows them up. Yep. That happens in Florida still today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, early on, one of the most famous ones is um, Noah and the flood. Uh, the whole the whole of creation, except every, for eight everyone's people. Everyone's wicked. Thoughts of their minds are continually evil all the time. God wipes the slate clean. So it does seem like God does that. I would maybe just like push back slightly that God hurts or kills his people, I think that does happen, that can happen. More often, though, it's people who have completely rebelled against Mm -hmm. him and are working against God's purposes. So it isn't like God's people are faithfully walking with him, they belong to him, they trust him, and then they make one little mistake and God just kills them. Uh, That's not the norm. The norm is if you completely reject God, he reserves the right to take back the gift of life from you. And that's one of the reasons I love Numbers 
like I can't go too deep into it, but one of the most fascinating incidents is where Aaron, Moses's brother, and Miriam, his sister, also say, hey, you know, we don't like Moses. He married a Cushite woman. There's a clear racist element there. Like I, I did some study on that one time. If you were Cushite, you were a very dark black person. They were racist. And part of the irony of that passage is the Hebrew scholars tell us that when Miriam was stricken with a skin disease, that particular word means a word that turned her skin like super white. So there's some irony in God's punishment. Like, oh, you have a problem with Moses, your brother, marrying a very black woman. Well, let's see how you like being very, very white. But that's to this point from Grant. I mean, God does hurt in Grant's question, discipline his, even his own people, some of the godliest people, when they get a little bit out of line. Yeah, so before we answer if it still happens today, can we just answer, Is why is that okay? Like, why is it okay that God killed everybody on earth in the flood? Why is it okay that God swallowed up Korah and all the people of the rebellion in the earth? Like, we're not... We're not allowed to do that. Well, right? why? Because you're the lead pastor. I'm going to push this completely <laughs> back on you. And let's just put a fine point on it, because to Grant's question, okay, I can sort of stomach God doing that to Miriam and Aaron. They kind of seem to have it coming. That's more of a disciplinary thing. Yeah, like you just said, God wiping out the whole population of humankind, that seems a little over the top for a God who yeah. says he's loving. What, I mean, what do you say to that? Well, this is tough. I and mean, one, I wouldn't minimize anybody wrestling with this like you should wrestle this with is worth it. wrestling with yeah uh so i don't i want to hesitate to just give an easy answer and move on that being said we only have a few minutes so uh <laughs> where i have gotten to that's helped me as i've wrestled with this is to realize that god's relationship with us is different than our relationship with other people so like we are used to the ethics of jesus which means we don't harm others. We don't kill others. Right. The reason why, morally speaking, murder is wrong, the reason why it's wrong to take the life of another human being is because life is a gift from God given to all of us. Mm. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is pure grace that we get to be alive. And this is just basic Christian worldview. You, don't, you didn't earn your life. God gave it to you. Therefore, it's wrong for you to take it from anybody else. You didn't give it to them. God gave it to them. Mm -hmm. So you don't get to take life from someone that God has given it to. That's kind of like the basic reason why murder is wrong. Right. Well, God is in a different position. He's the giver. He, he actually is well within his rights to take life from any of us at any point. Like, we don't get to lodge a complaint against God, all we get is to be grateful for whatever he gives us. However many days of life, whatever life he grants to us, we receive it with gratitude. We we aren't owed life by God. And so, again, not, I'm not saying that makes it easy. I'm just saying <laughs> it does mean it's a categorically different thing when God takes life than when a person does. You're such a clear-headed thinker, Wyatt, well, which I, I appreciate. But I mean, I want to I wanna push back just a little, or at least kind of give my gut reaction to that, which, okay, what you just said makes perfect sense. But I think what it leaves us open to, and I, I see this reflected in some of the questions that we're not even going to have time to get to, it's a common complaint that it seems like God's a little bit capricious. Like, okay, he has the power to take life 
And he seems at times to do it without second thought. Like it's a little scary. How do we, mm. how do we reckon with the character of this God who can wipe out people wholesale? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I would say if God is who we say God is, then he isn't capricious. He isn't just taking life without second thought. So if it feels that way, let's, let's dive back in and see what's going on. Because I think when God takes life, it is in pursuit of his mission in creation, which he has been very open about what it is, to restore us to the blessing that he intended, to reverse the curse of sin, to create a covenant people who will represent him to the world and bless all the nations of the world. So it's, you know, it's this pursuit of the new heavens and new earth, the undoing of the curse of sin, mm-hmm. no more tears, no more death. Like that's where God's headed. And I do believe there's a point where God says to people, if you, if you won't be a part of that, if you are going to work against this, if you're going to embrace sin and bring, you know, pain and brokenness and evil and, you know, sexual, you know, all kinds of stuff. and like, Often defiantly. Defiantly, like, then, um, yeah, then I'm sorry. Like, there's no more room for you in this, in this future because I am undoing that. Like, God is intense that he is not going to let sin hang around and continue to bring all the curse that it has. And so if you align yourself with evil, at some point, God is going to remove you from creation. And interestingly, in a lot of other situations, as Paul says, for instance, very clearly in Romans 1, God's wrath is actually expressed not in him doing something, but in him letting us continue on in our own way, where we reap the consequences of our own sin. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is a complex question. God doesn't always intervene directly like Grant is suggesting here. Sometimes he does the exact opposite. He just steps out of the way and seemingly says, okay, that's the way you yeah. want to go. I'm not going to be merciful and intervene while you destroy yourself. Yeah. Okay, now to the question, is God still like that today, post-Jesus? What do you think? One really um, clear scripture that comes to mind is actually in a passage we're familiar with from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, that talks a lot about the Lord's Supper, and we read it often when we have communion together. And Paul talks about there about the fact that there are times where God, even today, when people are not judging themselves, he says, not taking care of their own sin, God does judge them. He says this is why, verse 30 of chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, this is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have even fallen asleep. In other words, died. Is this just like first century early church? Actually, I could give a few examples of people where I might speculate where they were living in open, wanton sin, and they faced some pretty severe consequences. So I think God still does that today. I'm not privy to all of the times he does or doesn't. And we also should be careful to note, Jesus makes it pretty clear, just because something bad is happening to you or to somebody else, it does not mean God's judgment is being brought on you. Uh, So we don't know when and how, but God is the same today that he always has been. And Jesus doesn't shy away from the idea of God's wrath. You know, like sometimes people want to think that, you know, uh, the Old Testament God was wrathful, which is also 
wrong. Like that is not the picture of the Old Testament God from the Old Testament. He's full of grace, you know, compassionate, uh, faithful, faithful love. Yes. Exodus 34, six, God's character that gets repeated over and over and over in the Old Testament. So, and if you just read the story, God in the Old Testament is so patient is, yeah. you know, overlooking sin over and over and over. He's slow to anger. So, but the, the other truth is that Jesus doesn't come and say, oh, God's not like that anymore. Like, no more wrath. Everybody just kind of do your thing. Everything's fine. No, like Jesus appeals to God's wrath. I mean, this is John three thirty six. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, God is still intent on removing sin from creation, on on purifying all of the curse out of his good creation. Uh, if even today, if, if you refuse to respond to Jesus, if you if you cling to sin and rebellion, God is going to take that gift of life back from you. I mean, that's and 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 man, praise Him for that. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's that's the flip side. Is it means when you see terrible things happening in this world, when you see evil people who are bringing all kinds of pain and suffering you can know for sure God is not going to let yeah. that stand. God is not celebrating, neither is he sitting idly by just going, oh, well, there go those right. crazy kids again. Yeah. Okay, let's keep moving. Uh, question number two. Uh, I find it troubling that Moses was not allowed into the promised land. With all the times he trusted God, one event at Mirabah was enough to keep him out. So for people who aren't familiar with the story, can you fill that in a little bit? Yeah, this was when the people were complaining again. They were not able to find water. God and Aaron, or uh, Moses and Aaron go to God, say, what are we doing? God says, just speak to the rock and I'm going to bring forth water. Instead, Moses, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I was just rereading that. He yells at them basically and says, you people are making Aaron and I have to take care of this. And he strikes the rock twice. And God says, Moses, you are not entering the promised land. Seems like, again, like a way huge overreaction on God's part. But yeah. I, I think I, like one thing that I think is really important to understand here as I pondered that is the people of Israel weren't able to enter the promised land because they didn't believe God, they didn't trust God. God basically, for just one moment, but still holds Moses to the exact same standard that he held you the children. You didn't trust of, me. You didn't trust me, and therefore you can't enter the promised land. Yeah. I'm not going to look past it. I think that's really insightful. I mean, I would appeal to God holds the leaders to a higher standard. I think it's true today. It's yeah. true then. So there's that. Um, yeah, I mean, this, like we said earlier, like this was a pretty overt act of rebellion from Moses. Moses loses it with yeah. God and the people. Yeah. So it was probably a little more serious than it sounds to us at first right. reading. Um, the one that was funny to me just before, no, just after that, um, when Aaron is old, God's just like, hey, Aaron, uh, go up on that mountain and die. <laughs> Did you read that one? Yes, it's a it's, command. <laughs> and it, like later it says like, and... Uh, it was reflecting in when Aaron, you know, was commanded by God to go up on the mountain and die. It was, it's, I don't know, it just was really funny. It wasn't necessarily even a punishment. It was just like, your time has come, go up on that mountain. Time's up. Yeah. And he walks up there and dies. <laughs> so uh, no one had a question about that. I just thought it was funny. We, the, we got a few more questions. Can I just say one other quick thing yeah. on this one? Because, I mean, so much of the law 
is meant to just show us God's super high standard for holiness. You can't come into the temple like 90% of the time because you touch something unclean or you have right. a skin disease or whatever. You have a pimple. You can't come into the temple. I don't mean to be, you know, flipping about it, but it reminds us, it does point us to Jesus because even Moses, this godliest of men, yeah. was not able to fully trust God. And it just reminds us Jesus is the one who could fully trust God. He's the only one who fully passed the test. Yeah, that's good. And, and I mean, rather than say like, wow, God overreacted with Moses. How about we say, wow, God has been so gracious to us in Christ. Moses lost it when the people were grumbling. Jesus didn't lose it when God said, okay, you need to die on a cross for these people that I love. And we get given the intimacy with God that Jesus earned. I mean, that's the thing. Incredible. His grace with us is overflowing, and that's an amazing thing. Um, We got to get in a few more. What do we got? How about this one? Can you guys speak to the way God commands the treatment of aliens and how immigrants are viewed in our society today? Um, I'm assuming this is not aliens like from Mars, but... uh, (laughs) Immigrants, aliens, strangers, yeah. I can tell you, reading through the... Reading through these passages, God's commands to the people about how to treat the immigrant really stood out to me, Hmm. Uh, that you are to love them as if they're among your own people. Yeah. And what it stood out to me, I mean, I couldn't help but have in mind our political conversations today around immigration. And um, what was so striking to me was if there was ever a time when it would have made sense to not be open to immigrants, to aliens, it's in this context. Yeah. Like Israel's supposed to be a holy nation set apart from the world, distinct and separate. You could almost make a case like you shouldn't let anybody in. I mean, they're, they're going to bring their own customs. They're going to bring their own ways of thinking about God or the gods that might even worship other gods. Like, right. like keep them out. And yet God says, no, love them, serve them, treat them as one of your own. And so... I mean, man, if God had that standard, then think about the standard he would hold us to today How much more? at followers of Jesus. Like, yeah, I, I, I could go on, but I just think the burden is pretty high on, on us. What jumps out to me on that one, I mentioned earlier Leviticus 19, that chapter, Be Holy as I Am Holy. And that is one of the chapters in Leviticus where God really drills down into how they treat aliens and strangers and immigrants. And one of the things you notice there, because so many of the laws in Leviticus, God doesn't explain. He doesn't tell us why you can't boil a goat in its mother's milk. But on that one, he explains, he says, because you yourselves know what it was like to live as aliens in another country. You know what it was like to be looked down upon, hated, discriminated against. And I love how God just gets so relational there and appeals to their heart. No, that's good. Okay, last one. Um, <laughs> okay, somebody's calling me out for my previous answer without knowing it. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I said God doesn't change. He's the same God in the Old Testament as he is today. That's right? what the Bible says, right? 100%. So, so <laughs> how is it that an unchanging God had a man stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath and told a woman who was accused of adultery to go and sin no more? <laughs> so, referring to the Old Testament, the... The God-given punishment for violating the Sabbath was death. It was a capital offense to violate the Sabbath. 
Um, and yet we get Jesus in the New Testament when confronted with the woman caught in adultery who shows grace, doesn't stone her, you know. Um, and, Go and sin no more, Yeah, he says. so why? Like, those seem very different. How, the same, if God doesn't change, why are we getting such different things there? Well, one of the things that comes to mind for me is we often are frustrated in our reading of Old and New Testament with just the, the scarcity of details, you know, so for instance, this guy that they came and reported to Moses, he's out, you know, gleaning on the Sabbath. Like, for all we know, he was doing it like because he hated the Sabbath. Maybe he was picketing. Maybe he had a sign out there that said down with the Sabbath. You know, he was very easily someone who was trying to take down the community. We don't know all the story. It was not an accident. Let's say that. Like when there's a death penalty involved, you don't just do that. Well, But also when you live in that culture, the whole world revolves around the Sabbath everyone, everyone, you know, all your neighbors, like the horns are blowing when Sabbath starts. Everybody's been preparing for the Sabbath day to go work on the Sabbath is an overt act of, I will not be a part of this. Like this, this task that God has given us to have a day of rest, to represent the reality of resting in him and trusting him, being a nation that shows this to the world. I'm out. I don't want to be a part of that. I'm going to go do my own thing. So that shows us. That's a great exposition of the passage. There's something going on here that's basically open defiance Mm -hmm. and is potentially taking down a lot of people with him as a bad example. Whereas this woman caught in adultery, again, I can only speculate, but maybe this woman was sold into prostitution. We don't know her circumstances. It's still a sin, but I think sometimes we have to be careful that we read a lot into the passage that we just don't know. God judges the heart. God is fair. And so there's two very different situations going on here. Yeah. The other thing I point out about the passage in the New Testament with the woman caught in adultery is Jesus is pointing out the hypocrisy of right. the people who are ready to stone her. You know, the people who are ready to stone her are self-righteous. They're ignoring their own sins. I mean, so Jesus is leveling the playing fields there in, in an important way and getting rid of some of the the overt sin of the religious leaders of that day. So these just there's a different end in mind. Um, yeah, so I, maybe that doesn't solve everything, but I think that's a good window into this. And there's plenty more questions ahead. We're going to keep reading the Bible, and I'm excited to keep hearing from people. Steve, thanks for sharing this time with me. I hope we get a part two to this one. There's I think we a will. lot more questions to be asked. I think we will. Yeah, thanks, man. Wow, this was a really fun episode. We want to thank Grant and like five anonymous people who sent in questions. These were really fun. We hope you'll send in more. Thanks to all of you who are participating, watching. Please continue to follow, subscribe, tell your friends. And until next time, we'll see you on Native Exiles.